Okay, everyone. My name is Calvin Reed. I'm uh, I'm going to be your your host for this talk. Uh, welcome to the Comet Cometh, uh, a graphic avid adaptation of W. E. B. Du Bois's The Comet. Uh, you know, we're going to discuss um, uh, Dr. W. E. B. Du Bois, uh, black scholar, uh, historian. Uh, um, uh, activist, pan-Africanist, and of course an Afrofuturist. Uh, and his groundbreaking, his celebrated short story, the comic, uh, the comic, and its adaptation into a graphic novel by Tim Fielder, uh, to be published by a major American publisher. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll put him on the spot about when and all of that's going to be happening, uh, going to be happening. Um, uh, but, Joining us in the discussion today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about our panelists. I'll start with Tim, uh, the guy in question, the artist. Tim is an illustrator, a cartoonist, and an animator. He's born in Tupelo, Mississippi, and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He has a lifelong love of visual Afrofuturism, hope, entertainment, and action films. He is the creator of the very impressive... <laughs> Graphic novel Infinitum, an Afrofuturist tale, published by HarperCollins Amistad imprint in 2021. The Glyph Award winning comic Maddie's Rocket, more to come on that. Uh, and the graphic history of, uh, of hip hop, uh, to be released, um, in very shortly, I think in the new year. Yes. In addition, Dr. Uh, Julian Chambliss, I hope I said that correctly. Yeah. Uh, he, Excuse me? So Chambliss is fine. Chambliss. Uh, Dr. Chambliss is a professor of English and the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum at Michigan State University. His research focuses on race, culture, and power in real and imagined spaces. His engagement with Afrofuturism sketches uh, from comics to community activism informed by Black digital humanities and critical Afrofuturist frameworks. Also, Dr. Ronaldo Anderson. Dr. Anderson currently serves as a graduate director and associate professor of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Ronaldo is currently the executive director and co-founder of the Black Speculative Arts Movement, uh, an international network of artists, intellectuals, creatives, and activists. As I said, my name is Calvin Reed. I'm a contributing editor at Publishers Weekly, and I'm a co-host on More to Come, PW's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. All right, uh, the this the comic comic is also a part of a larger festival, Carnegie Hall's uh, festival, Dancing on the Precipice: The Fall of the Weimar Republic. And I know that Tim's kind of been in the the Carnegie Hall's Afrofuturist Festival in the past, but there's a number of events that are associated uh, with this panel. Uh, so, so Tim, tell us more about the events. Yeah, uh, the uh, the festival that Carnegie Hall is putting on uh, with the uh, Dancing on the Precipice uh, is really a, a it's pulling a juxtaposition between the kind of uh, between the liberal environment. And the very much conservative environment that existed in Germany leading up to Nazi Germany and mm -hmm. then bringing a correlation in how it relates to what's happening today 
in uh, our community. And um, I'm uh, proud to say, you know, I was involved with Carnegie Hall last year, as you stated, with the Carnegie Hall Afrofuturism Festival. And Dr. Anderson, who was one of the uh, curators, asked me to come in uh, during the Afrofuturism Festival. Uh, and uh, that went great, and it broke my career open. And now he went lost his mind again, and he asked me again to do it. So this time, I am doing an adaptation of W.E.B. Du Bois's um, The Comet, which is interesting because my company, Diesel Funk Studios, as a festival, official festival partner uh, with it, it's like that's just one thing. There's so many people all over the world who are doing things both in the city in the country and internationally that are that all are kind of putting in their thing. You know, of course, Carnegie Hall is known for their music, you know, uh, uh, Bernstein and, and everybody. And, and that's incredible. But they really have broadened their spectrum with these festivals to be much more inclusive. And I think, too, it has expanded the conversation of what culture is. As Dr. Anderson said so astutely uh, about Afrofuturism, it's part of the high culture. Uh, and the, that's one of the reasons why I'm privileged to have these two gentlemen working with me today. Okay. Now, but there's some other events, right? An exhibition. There's the children's yes, yes. deal. There's uh, talks. and re- what, Maybe you can just yeah. touch on that very quickly. So the comet cometh, and this is why I love Calvin Reed because he keeps me on track. Uh, <laughs> the comet cometh is... Three events. It is the Comet Comet exhibit in which the uh, pages that are being produced for the Comet will be progressively shown over the entire course of the show. So every time you come back to the show, there'll be new pages uh, going up. I'm very proud of that. And that will be the one in-person event. Our other events are the Comet Comet Talks. And of which this talk that we're doing now is the first. Uh, the first will be, of course, with the great Calvin Reed interviewing us three gentlemen. The second will be with myself and the great grandson of Arthur McFarlane, uh, I mean, of, of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Arthur McFarlane II. Great. Uh, uh, interviewed, uh, moderated by Julian Shambliss. The third will be a discussion between Yatasha Womack and Sheree Renee Thomas. As you know, Sheree is the one who really brought the comet back into a kind of public awareness. Mm. And the final will be a conversation with uh, Joel Christian Gill of Boston University. And we'll be talking about technically how the comet was done. Now, the third tier is called the uh, Comet uh, Cometh Reads, which uh, Ahmed Best, who is now known as Keller and Beck, the Jedi from the Mandalorian, is going to be reading the comet, uh, and it will be superimposed with the images from the, the comic, uh, as well as, uh, original music done by my, uh, um, beautiful brother, uh, Boston Fielder, who, of the Herbalt, uh, orchestra. And that's it. I'll be going on from January next week, this week, uh, January all the way to, uh, May. Hey, hey, it's Tim Fielder's world. We just get a chance to hang out in it. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, I assume you got it all. There's so much it would be easy for you to leave something out. So look, um, I, I, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Shambliss, why don't we, I want to jump to you guys. 
What's your role? I know you're going to be writing some material uh, for the exhibition, for the book. Um, why don't we start with Dr. Anderson and then uh, talk about what, how, how you're contributing to this? Um, what I've been able to do with this current um, festival with Carnegie Hall, as Tim mentioned earlier, I was able to organize several different of the local collectives of the Black Speculative Arts Movement from around the world to participate. Uh, so we have artist collectives from Brazil, Colombia, Canada, Germany, the Netherlands, Cameroon, and Côte d'Ivoire from West Africa and uh, London, England, to each put their own kind of spin on their critique from their own geographical position of what was going on with black life in relation to the 1920s and the Weimar Republic. As during the Weimar Republic, that was considered in the 20th century one of the early cosmopolitan places where people of different backgrounds and orientations could all meet in the post-imperial Germany as a fledgling democracy where they could experiment around film, music, and visual arts, and architecture. And that was when I reached out to Tim and talked to him. I said, you know, also during this period, this is where... uh Previously, liberal black thinkers like W.B. Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper and others around that time began to reassess American democracy after World War I. So a, pre, a few years prior to this appearance of Darkwater and his short story, The Comet, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars and so forth and so on. And black Americans come back from that war and then you're running head on into Jim Crow realities and then the Spanish flu pandemic. And then the years of repression, uh, uh, uh whether it was, um, the violence of, uh, what resulted in the Tulsa race riots and the other race, or I, I just say race massacres because I remember reading yeah. somewhere people use the term riots so that the insurance companies wouldn't have to pay out any insurance. So they were race massacres. Uh, East St. Louis. There, it happened all across the country. And this is where I think Du Bois, as a much more mature intellectual, writes the comment. And he basically, uh, looks at it from a perspective. And, uh, and in the book, the other essay in there, The Souls of White Folk, where he begins, he talks about this pessimistic view of American democracy and race relations. And so that's when I contacted Tim and said, hey man, put this together. I think this is going to be an interesting twist to think about um, how black people are beginning to are, are, have developed this international perspective over a hundred years ago. And I think it was in conversation with our colleagues. I said, look, we've been producing black people who had a very wide range of the world ever since the 19th century. And so, but it all comes together with people like Elaine Locke, uh, who's kind of a, a, an heir somewhat to Du Bois, who becomes the father of the Harlem Renaissance and what they would call the New Negro Movement. And so that thought, and I approached Carnegie and said, you know, this would be an interesting take to take a uh, look at this from an international perspective uh, to uh, look at uh, the fall of the Weimar Republic. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Shambles? Oh, thank you. Um one of the things that, in terms of talking with Tim, 
uh, the history of the black speculative practice as, as Ronaldo, uh, so, so eloquently defined over the years, really stretching back to the 19th century. So for my work with related to the project, I was really looking at those precursor stories, those stories by people like Martin Delaney, people like Sutton Griggs, Pauline Hopkins, and really thinking about the, the transition as, as Ronaldo talks about of the kind of speculative activism and what are the kind of imaginations that black people are articulating throughout the 19th century, because they are, of course, studying the system and looking for ways to sort of achieve the sort of promise of the American dream and increasingly are turning to more radical outside the box interventions and using speculative space as a roadmap to the, these are the ways and way and, and means that can be achieved to uh, get that transformation. And in my mind, I think of the boys as sort of trans- transition as Ronaldo was talking about as the end of a, a particular era of speculative practice by black people that really sort of recognizes that the systemic nature of resistance, the anti, the anti-blackness sort of born in a colonial system has to be overcome by some sort of tremendous intervention that totally disrupts the sort of status quo, that the normal modes of life and practice have to be undermined by something catastrophic. And that, you know, can be associated with sort of like revolution, but in a story, he uses a sort of analogous uh, of the comment as a way to sort of think about what did that disruption mean? What kinds of uh, transformations and thinking are achieved in the aftermath of some total societal breakdown, which becomes a theme, I think, uh, throughout the 20th century. As you see a generation of science fiction writers also think about the sort of decline of systems and the need for interventions. So as part of this project, I'm really trying to make that argument and make that connection. And then the conversations that we'll be having um Later on during the festival, I'll be leading some conversations with scholars that'll be talking about the sort of legacy of these things, both from a kind of African perspective, practice, um, Afrofuturism, but also talking to our colleagues who study German culture and the ways they engage with Black people as ciphers and symbols of revolution and resistance in the Weimar Republic. Okay. So, so Tim, yes. So, uh, I, I love I, being I, the also, comedic relief in this. This is great. Well, I, uh, well, you got the right people to talk about what yes, you're doing. Yes, um, exactly. Well, you know, one thing I would like to do, I mean, just, uh, for whoever may be turning in, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, I gave my little truncated, uh, you know, uh, biography of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, could, could either of you just very briefly sketch out his extraordinary career for anyone who's tuning in and might need a little more information? Uh, well, let me start with just the, the basics. Uh, uh, sure. Arguably the most respected black intellectual, uh, certainly African American intellectual has ever lived, uh, 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 pan Africanist. Uh, he, also, and, and, and I'm going to hand it off because I don't want to run with this too long because I'm going to get my legs broken. Uh, the most impressive thing about him was he was a co-founder of the NAACP. This guy was multi-threaded. He was highly ex- expansive, a deep thinker and a deep writer. Uh, and it's a privilege to be adapting this work. Uh, this would be the second adaptation of a W.E.B. Du Bois uh, a project into graphic novel form. 
Uh-huh. The, the second, what, what, what is the, the other? other words, uh, adaptation was done by Rutgers, uh, the souls of black folk. Oh, uh, came of out course. in uh, 2023. It was the first official that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I would say this, uh, something I was uh, speaking with actually Julian about the other day is that, uh, the comet, what makes that story so incredible is that it arguably is the first, if not, if not the first, one of the first post-apocalyptic science fiction stories. So this guy who was already um, uh, a race man, if you will, uh, was expansive enough to create an entire genre of of, of speculative fiction uh, uh, just by integrating uh, the, the things that uh, Dr. Anderson mentioned about collapsing of systems and, you know, horror. And, and that's basically what the comet is. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about this discussion about the book you're doing. Uh, like most, like most people, and I'll say certainly like most black people, I, my understanding of W.E.B. Du Bois is as a, a great historian, I has, you know, uh, um, uh, the, uh, reading the souls of black folk, the, the whole notion of, uh, the color line, uh, you know, defining the 20th century. Uh, but it's only in recent years for myself that we, I started to understand his role in speculative fiction and certainly as an Afro, Afrofuturist. Um, uh, either of you want to maybe just talk a little bit more about that, about, uh, was this something that was understood at the time this story came out or later on as we get, uh, get a, a, a better understanding of how the thought of thinking about black people in these different kind of modalities or frankly in the future <laughs> as black people mm-hmm. having a future, uh, mm-hmm. you know, actually became, uh, you know, a source for material, a resource for material. Either I think, way. Uh, um, see what, what Du Bois represented, the comet as a short story represents an excellent piece of what, of what you might call black speculative modernism. In terms of he emerges, uh, I think he's maybe a little bit younger than, yeah, yeah, of course, he's younger than somebody like an H.G. Wells. And what they do with this black literary modern, uh, speculative modernism, it juxtaposes what Europeans talk about, you know, with H.G. Wells um, and a lot of writers in the late 19th century in London, their writing emerges as a response to a crisis in British imperialism. Whereas the black speculative tradition emerges as a response to scientific racism, colonialism, Jim Crow and imperialism, a, a whole different set of categories. And as I, uh, uh, something I'm writing for 10 now, it also lends itself to a kind of a pessimistic critique of, of white modernity saying the only time that something can change is in the face of a catastrophe as when uh, we're able to see each other's true humanity when these structural things that maintain white supremacy have been smashed. And so the comet is an illust- a literary and speculative illustration of the way we're treated as human beings only seems to change in the face of a greater catastrophe. And that's why when, uh, and then, uh, there are parallels as people more have talked about recently. Uh, how these pandemics or these, some of the, which, or as somebody might call a black swan event, mm. uh, 
really shows you who America really is. Like what happened during COVID, same thing happened during the Spanish flu pandemic, where the systems that had been in place begin to unravel. Mm-hmm. And it's during the unraveling where we each see each other as we are truly are that people begin to imagine alternatives. You know, so you could say the Harlem Renaissance and the new Negro movement can't happen if World War One and the Spanish flu pandemic hadn't happened. And so, uh, as, uh, I think, and that's why when we're looking at the Weimar Republic now and the rise of authoritarianism in the world now, and it's happening around the world, I always look at it as the silver lining that in the face of a catastrophe or some of these issues, we have an opportunity to reimagine alternatives. And what I like best about the black speculative uh, modernist tradition, uh, and it speaks to what Toni Morrison says, it, it, it gives us that moment where white folks cannot live in our imagination rent-free. And so we begin to uh, think about alternatives. And that's where I think... Uh, his long-term contribution to what would later be called Afrofuturism lays. Dr. Yeah. Shabbat, you want to add to that? Sure. Sure. I, I think, you know, when we think about the boys, I, I completely uh, agree with Ronaldo. You know, as the first African-American get a PhD, um, someone who worked in academia, and I think it's important to sort of recognize that that work in academia was really sort of in opposition to that rising uh, scientific racism that Ronaldo refers to and the ways that a kind of systemic misinformation about black people, about the trans associated with black people coming out of slavery, coming out of reconstruction and working as a professor to do work, studying black people and documenting their progress, creating some of the first visualizations. Uh, so it's showing the progress of black people and education field and talking very deliberately about the ways that from a kind of sociological perspective is really systemic failures on the part of white people and their practices that are sort of systemic in opposition to black people. That's the real cause of why black people aren't doing well. And that over the course of his career, you know, he goes further and further and is more engaged over time trying to correct the record and I think that gets very, very interesting that increasingly, you know, he works, uh, as in, in a kind of artistic field, um, uh, even as a, the editor of the, the crisis. Remember, he was the editor of the NWT magazine, the crisis, and it recognizes the importance of art as a way to intervene in a way that this sort of information narrative isn't able to intervene, right? He, and we see this today. You can tell people the truth. But that don't mean they'll accept the truth, right? Uh, at some level, art becomes a space, as Rala sort of indicates, that can't be policed by the sort of false narrative and the false, false, um, imagination being articulated that's anti-black. And in fact, you have to create a space where black people can work through the possibilities associated with liberation. What would it take to get to that next step? And I think it's interesting to, to see a figure like Du Bois over time thinking about his work, being very academic, working and thinking about, oh, are there legal ways that we can do this? Can we, can we employ the courts and all these other things? But increasingly relying on the speculative as a way 
to really build the capacity of black people to think outside the box and seek liberation. And I think that's part of the reason why I always think about this as a, a kind of key work that opens the door to the kind of speculative work that will happen uh, in, in the post-war, right? Because after World War II, we get another period where black people are going to press across all uh, avenues to try to get freedom. Now, does he have other speculative works? It's a, a, a piece called The Dark Princess, which is actually yeah. um, where um, we have a colleague, John Jennings, has an imprint called Megascope. Oh, Megascope, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that's where he introduced the idea of the Megascope in, in, in Dark Princess, where he's using it to sort of, really, that's a critique of capitalism. Again, if you think about the nature of his escalation, escalation is a horrible word, but you know, he gets more and more sort of very clear that the system is failing. And I think it also corresponds to a more diasporic approach. It's not to say he wasn't diasporic early in his career, but when you think about Pan-Africanism and, and the voices, like he's really pulling together the strands of black activism for a, really almost a century before and bringing it to bear in his work um, as a, a academic and then as a, a kind of creative. So, so uh, let's talk about the plot of the comet. Uh, cool. yeah. Tim, yeah, I've had to swim in the comet yes. uh, over the last uh, year. Uh, so it basically takes place. It, you know, it, it flows. It was written. You know, it, was, it came out in 1920. But for myself, I tend to associate it in the early, you know, the 20, 1920s, 1930s, right? And it concerns this bank messenger, that job doesn't exist anymore, named Jim, who through a series of events is asked to do some work for his boss, who is a owner of a bank. And in the process, he goes down deep into a vault. Uh, and while all of this is going on, there are murmurs of the comet, a actual celestial event that is occurring. And uh, the comet passes. And it ends up apparently killing everyone except for Jim. Uh, and Jim is a black man. Um, uh, and in the process of survival, he comes across another survivor who is a white woman named Julia. And in them coming together in that period, which is very much Jim Crow based, but also in the, in, in the dense metropolis of Manhattan, uh, they are forced to confront their issues on race, on gender, on societal roles. And because they are the only ones who are surviving, have to ultimately make a decision uh, that they are the future of the human race. I won't go into any, uh, anything deeper than that because I don't want to ruin <laughs> the story, but... It is very much in the vein of, you know, I want to say, yeah, it's in the vein of the walking dead without the zombies, right? But it is very <laughs> much uh, has all of the characteristics that you would see something in 1920, all those characteristics. And I consider, even though, yes, uh, Du Bois was slightly younger than H.G. Wells, I consider them contemporaries. Uh, mm. I consider them contemporaries. They were both pulling from the same technological in the same scientific strands. Uh, and that's why it's so prominent in that work. But of course, W.B. Du Bois was black, so there was not as much attention paid to uh, the project. So I 
you know, the comic to me is a story about hope. Mm-hmm. It's a story about being able to overcome one's limitations in unison with someone else and overcoming those differences when it is apparent those differences no longer matter. And that's what the comedy is. But isn't there a bit of literary cold water or, or, or however you want to term it? it? it It's a hopeful story up to a point, or am I wrong? Man, you found the, the comment hopeful? Um, some, you know, it depends. Some people actually, you know, because I've had to do so much. Just asking. Oh, no, no, no. It's, there are elements of romance in it as well. Sure. It's yeah. very much a romantic story. So it has, you know, it's like, what do they say? The Walking Dead really isn't about the zombies. It's about the humans and the horrible things they do to one another. Mm. So it's like that. Uh, yeah. uh, so it, you know, definitely has a feelings of, uh, I am legend in it. All those type of things. It's, it's, it's the comet fits perfectly within that lexicon of, 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 of stories. The horrible uh, things that white supremacy does? Yes, but it's also the horrible thing that men do to women and women, specifically white women, do to men. Mm-hmm. So, you so know, it's yes, please, please. You know, one of the interesting things when I think about it, I reflect on uh, the relationships in the film. How, and then when I look at it through some of my friends' lenses, who might be uh, who would consider themselves black feminists, how Julia is like all in on Jim until a white man shows up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that there, <laughs> yeah. and 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 yeah, and things change. And it goes back to white supremacy and white patriarchy can't exist without the support of white women. And so that's how I kind of frame Julia. She's just going on with who's the strongest person present who might take care of her uh, during the post-apocalyptic event. And uh, and so for me, that's the dynamic that I, I recall. And then I think about what is uh, what would have been possibly on Jim's mind about his family that may or may not have survived the event. Hmm. Like there's a black family waiting on him uh, after the event. So that's what I'm saying. That's something we don't know, you know, in terms of him returning to his family, her going back to her, you know, whatever her life is. And so hence that, that, that kind of uh, hint of pessimism or as some of my friends might use some uh, a, 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 a taint of Afro pessimism. In terms oh, that, of yes, these, another, these, uh, these structural things, scholar, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These structural things are present. And the only time, and he said, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's how I see these things crossing several different ways, uh, lenses or axis of looking at how these characters play out these prescribed roles in response to this, uh, calamitous event. You so, know, um, yeah, go on, please. Yeah, sorry. I, as I teach a class of features over here at uh, Michigan State, and we read the comment uh, as a short story. It's a great, uh, a great thing for students to read. Can't make a read a novel. I mean, you can, but it's hard. <laughs> One of the great things about um, the comment is that I'm always asking the students, you know, who do you think W. Du Bois wrote this for? 
And this is another one of the sort of pivotal. Good question. Yes. That, you know, the boys as a figure, uh, I think some of his earlier forebears in terms of speculative work are very, very deliberately, they're writing for black people. Like they, they are not expecting white people to read their work. But the boys is, I think, always uh, a figure, whether it was academic or creative, understood that there was a white audience that he was trying to transform. And so one of the things about the comet is that when the, some of the characters' voices at pivotal moments are really asking questions that white people should be asking themselves. And, and so there's a way where like you can sort of read the story and it is hopeful because you have the white character sort of like musing around and thinking about blackness and, and thinking about the structures in society and the assumptions that she has as a white person. And those are the questions that the boys and indeed all black people are asking white people to ask themselves, why are you this way? But then the question becomes ultimately at the end of the story, I think, as as the boys understood it, like a system. And within that system, can you break out, right? Uh, and he's really using the story, you know, I I, I really feel as a, a, a way to get a black and a white reader, but really I think at some level very much a white reader because he knows white people are reading his work. He's getting a white reader to think about the things that they do think about the system that they're in. And that's always the thing that's really provocative when you, when you sort of think about this work as sort of this sort of pivotal doorway uh, in terms of like how speculative writers of color are going to, you know, sort of continue down this path later on in the 20th century and, and have writers that are going to be asking similar questions like Octavia Butler, like a Samuel Delaney, right? Um they are asking really important questions about what is it that you think the system is doing and do you understand, especially from the perspective of a person of color, how the sort of precepts of the system are corrosive. Do you think that some of his descriptions of of the principal characters also indicate that? Um, yes. Who his readership is, how yes. he describes Jim, how he describes Julia? Yes. Uh, I, I think uh, Du Bois is very much, uh, even though, you know, everything that Dr. Chandler said, uh, I agree with. But he is also, and this is going to maybe be a, a, a an interesting point, he is also a consumer of present, of that period uh, entertainment. So he's using all of the tropes that you would have, uh, the, you know, how he describes uh, Julia in these kind of almost lyrical phrasing, which I, I have to, or something like that. Yeah. Right. Which I have to, of course, interpret visually. You know, that's the challenge of this book. Whereas Jim is, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's that, which necessarily so it is about that ruggedness, but it's about that ruggedness in conflict with, with Jim Crow. And so it's that dichotomy that when those two things are suddenly put together, it creates this very, very interesting dynamic uh, because it's not something that is, um, how would I say? It's not something, it is not something that is 
forced on them in a typical way. It is something that is forced upon them by an act of God, mm -hmm. if you will. That's what the comet represents. Uh, and it, it, I think, uh, uh, the more I've delved into the story and done my breakdowns and we can talk about, you know, the, the, the book and all of that, I guess in a minute, but God was a visionary to have done that story at that time, mm -hmm. who he was. It was just truly visionary. And, and, uh, it's, you know, just, well, I would just say this. Uh, I have an interest in doing books that are forerunner books. Mm -hmm. you know, I will eventually get around to doing other books, the Martin Delaney books and those type of things mm -hmm. as well. And because they need to be done. Awesome. They need to be brought to visual. That's why I think the black speculative arts movement exists is because it is giving visual to things that were restricted, you know, at, at, in the best case scenario by word or sound or not allowed to, uh, 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 announce itself at all. And the visual, the visual is the thing that's incredibly powerful. And that's why, I mean, I think Harry Belafonte, Belafonte did his own variant of the comment as well, but it wasn't titled the comment, uh, but, um, back in the, I think the late fifties and stuff. Oh. So it's, it's an honor to be part of that, that l legacy. Yeah, as a, as an Afrofuturist, it's part of the work that I did. It's a part of the work that all of us do. But for myself specifically, it's about doing work, hopefully, that will outlive me. And what better way to do that than to do works that were ignored and to bring them into the present, moving them into the future by bringing them into visual storytelling. And using this, the great and dynamic medium of comics. Um, and we're going to get to that. I, I am one more question very quickly. I'm curious. How was this, how was the, the comic and, and including what the, the volume it was included in dark water? How was it received at the time? Come on, Julian. You know, you got it. <laughs> well, you know, that's a good question. I'm ashamed to say that like a lot of, um, People, it is really Shereni, uh, Shereni, Shereni Renee Thomas's work in Dark Matter that brought that work to my attention. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and looked, okay, oh yeah, there are these black writers who are, are writing. Uh, I think in, in broadly speaking, that collection was well received because it was in a, in, a, in a book called Dark Water. As, as much of his work is, was, was well received at the time. I don't think that many people were focused on this particular story. Mm -hmm. I think um, this really follows uh, a set of writings for the boys that were at the time very much these sort of philosophical explorations of race. As Ronaldo points out, they're a part of like a broader set of like ideological uh, projects that he becomes increasingly involved in and really definitional for, for uh, a dialogue coming from, from black people at the time. But, you know, ultimately I will bow to the Godfather and, and say, well, what does Ronaldo think? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, for me, what this book represents is, is during a transitionary stage. Du Bois writes Darkwater in 1920, and this is just a few years before the Harlem Renaissance would take off because 
during this time, the intellectual baton is getting ready to be passed from him to Elaine Locke, who is, uh, within a few years after this book, a few years later, uh, writes his big book, The New Negro, where you have a new generation of people who have no memory of slavery, born after slavery, and come into maturity in the 20th century as adults. And, and can I, I just jump in, just for those who don't know, the, the great professor of, of, of philosophy, if I'm not mistaken, at Howard Locke. University, my yes. alma mater. So that's all. Okay. <laughs> wow, he had to put that in there. I had to get that in there. That's all right. So this, yeah. Go Bison. Anyway, and, yeah. <laughs> and so... The, and Dark Water, to me, when I read it when I was younger, the, the chapter I was really looking at, I, I kind of brushed past the comment I was reading is chapter, The Souls of White Folk. Mm. And to understand why Du Bois used folk, you got to understand his ideological influences from German idealistic philosophy when he studied in Berlin. And this, I think, Dark Water represents the end of a certain type of thing that he gives up on, where you, the younger Du Bois is more in the liberal American tradition, liberal progressive, dabbles in socialism a little bit, and a seed of Pan-African. By the 20s, I think this is where he's kind of given up on his earlier stuff around the talented 10th, his move away from that kind of perspective. And it begins his transition into, I think, some of his more radical stuff, Dark Water, and then the other literary piece after that, Dark Princess. Because you gotta remember during Du Bois, uh, when he comes of age, at the same, when he talks about how black people and the islands and the sea and all are treated around the world, this is also where he's seeing the destruction of all these other ethnic groups around the world in terms of the, co- the colonization of Korea, the, the destruction of other, uh, indigenous populations from Tasmania to the end of Native American civilization and all these other things. One of the interesting things in the time, this is kind of why I like Du Bois, is he was considered arrogant because, you don't, you know, he wasn't trying to hide his intelligence or, <laughs> or, or whatever. And H.G. Wells, uh, who his, meets both of these gentlemen, writes in his own writing, H.G. Wells, I think, uh, and I think it was in 1907, H.G. Wells said he thought that Booker T. Washington was the superior leader for black people in America as he mused, what would the descendants of the enslaved Africans and the descendants of the enslavers, how would they relate? And, he he, and H.G. Wells was more of a fan of Booker T. Washington. And, 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 I, and I suspect because, you know, Booker T., who I regard more as a Machiavellian, and Du Bois probably thought some of these people, he probably didn't think much too much of H.G. Wells beyond his limited uh, perspective on socialism. Du Bois is like the godfather or the head of the thing, but it's Alain Locke. These are the transitionary years between 1920 over the next few years to where the intellectual leadership of the new Negro shifts to Alain Locke. And so that's what I think this book represents. It kind of lays out, look, here's this speculative short story of the comet. These are the souls of white folk, and I got the gravitas to say that and get away with it. <laughs> and I know these people. And so then in the aftermath of that, and of course at the time, it, it shouldn't be undervalued of the correspondence between Anna Julia Cooper and Du Bois, who are corresponding at this time about, you know, the future of black people in America. And Elaine Locke and then pick up the baton at that time, and then our young Langston Hughes, 
mm-hmm. and other uh, uh, and, and other writers and, and thinkers are coming along up there in Harlem to debate some of these issues. And even some of them were flawed, but it was just the beginning. And then, of course, you know, I always tell people a lot of times you can't talk about the ideas of Du Bois and the comet without bringing up the literary nationalism of the Garvey movement um, during that time also. And so this is a time of a flowering of black internationalism. Hmm. Did we lose him? Hello? Yeah, go ahead. You back? Yeah, I'm back. We'll cut that part out. (laughs) (laughs) So as a black internationalist thing in the aftermath, because I know his book, The Dark Princess, was not well-reviewed. Uh, in terms of how it was received as a piece of literature, but I think Du Bois' work was much more polemical in terms of the politics that he aspired to at that time, and he really saw it was going to take a multiracial international alliance to overthrow white supremacy. Um, and so uh, this is that's that's why I think this time at, at where I'm in reading him now, uh, and in my conversations with Tim, I always tell people I think. Probably three or four of his most important works were, other than Souls of Black Folk, you got Dark Water and then Black Reconstruction. Yeah, oh. Are probably the three most important things from 1904 or 5 up into the early 1930s, where he's at his best, along with, you know, working on periodically, or he would later in life adopt the, um, working on the Encyclopedia Africana, where it was the president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, who is known to be the first person that uses the word Afrocentric in conversation with boys, even though people like Malefi Asante would use the word Afrocentricity, but it's in conversation with the boys that Kwame Nkrumah is one of, in a literary thing, is the earliest person to use the word Afrocentric. And so he has these four stages of life, that's why when you want to talk to Du Bois, you got to ask, which Du Bois are you talking about? You know, the the 30-something-year-old brilliant scholar, PhD, or the one who is a mature man in his 50s, begins to become, maybe adopts a more mature uh, aspect of what America really is, which I think he comes into full maturity by the 1920s, in terms of what they're facing, Uh, and that's why he illustrates that through the comet and then the, me- the, the, the megascope that shows up in, in the, in the, uh, later literature. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the best way I think in terms of when we're looking at Du Bois in that bracket, in that historical context. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. We're going to, we're going to jump in we, as time winds that we're going to jump quickly because, uh, okay. No pressure, Tim. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Uh, how do you turn this cultural artifact, this charged literary object, how do you turn it into a graphic novel? Uh, um, for instance, how do you get the rights? Yeah, okay. So uh, the comet is like many uh, stories that were done in the 1920s and earlier are all public domain. They're in public, public domain. Uh, so you really don't need permission. However, karmically, uh, I, you know, I know what it's like to do a project that you put time into that you don't get permission to do, right? So, uh, and I'll leave that at that, but I, 
this one here, uh, sometimes when you're doing something and, and it's closed off to you, another door opens. Mm-hmm. And so I'd done a project that was closed off to me and all of a sudden I saw the comet. Now I'd been studying and looking at the comet for several years. Uh, and it was something I had looked into, uh, and do a lot of research, talking with many of the different schools, different officials, lawyers. I found out that no one really knew what to do. Uh, and there were certain institutions that had a, a point of contact, but that point of contact was sort of nebulous. Uh, at the same time, I felt go to the family. It must so be an estate. I went yeah. on that magical thing called LinkedIn and I reached out to Arthur McFarlane II. I did a Google search for him. Uh, and it turns out when I went to San Diego Comic Con last year, uh, there you I go, the mother hope, of them all. Go I on. <laughs> Given up hope of reaching and he reached out to me. And it turns out Arthur lives in Hawaii, just the great grand Arthur McFarlane II. And he was in California at the time. So we met online, could meet in person because I was in San Diego. And he gave me his blessing, which was something that moved me dearly. You know, as some projects you work on, they're very hard to get through. This one just felt like water. It just mm. felt like water. It was so easy. And Arthur has been very supportive of my work. I, I consistently send him updates, which mm. is gracious enough to agree to uh, participate in the talks. Uh, so all that to say, nothing happens by itself. Uh, the Children's Arts Carnival, which is where my Black Metropolis show was held in 2022 during the uh, Carnegie Hall Afrofuturism Festival, returns again to mount the Comet Cometh exhibit uh, uh, put on by uh, Jose Ortiz and Michael Unthink. And uh, they are the uh, administrators and mounted and curated by uh, Jose and Dionis Ortiz. Uh, the Children's Arts Carnival is a foundational institution in Harlem at the intersection of uh, Hamilton Terrace and 144th Street uh, around Convent Avenue. Uh, it's a seminal birthplace for many Black cartoonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Milestones group, a lot of those guys came out. Oh, of there. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. I Wayne McDuffie and that, you know, that the, the, the group that he's, you're referring to. Exactly. The Children's Arts Carnival is like the Kevin Bacon of, 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 of black comics. It, there, there, it, it's always <laughs> some kind of connection you could find. Right. Uh, and so they, you know, the carnival wanted to become more. Uh, uh, intentional about reaching out to the community. So when we met together and we decided to do the thing for Black Metropolis, the comet was a natural fit. So the Children's Arts Carnival, along with Doodle AI, the process that I'm using, Herbal Entertainment, Studio Visceral, the Afro Fantastic, the Black Speculative Arts Movement, the uh, West Harlem Arts. I'm trying to uh, list off all my. Let me, let me jump in here though. What the, the, Designing the character. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, all right. I'm going to get to that. So all all that, all of these things mean that it does not happen by itself. Now, the work I have to do, that part that can't be done with other folks, you have to do it by yourself, right? Right. Uh, I'm a very cinematic thinker. I'm a very cinematic person, you know. uh, um, And so for me, I see everything as a, a kind of a, fact, a a fusion of a film, animation, and comics together. Mm-hmm. And very often to try to keep things fresh, 
I like to pull from different influences. So I would say stylistically, what the comet is, as I'm putting together with design of the characters, take young Morgan Freeman. Right? <laughs> okay. Hey, it's okay. young Morgan. And I tell you, I tell folks this, hey man, he's like young Morgan Morgan Freeman. All the ladies who I said, well, whoo, oh, right. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing you. all of the things like because I I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to say this. The comet is a piece of pop culture. It really is. Oh, absolutely. You know, of, of, you know, of, of past pop culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I, so I based the characters on real actors or a real, you know, influence. They're not exact duplicates of them. Uh, the, uh, Julia is, uh, uh, I forget, I can't believe I'm blanking out her name. A famous European actress, um, uh, I can't believe it with the Bob haircut. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, uh, Brooks. Yes, yes, Louise Brooks. Yeah. So I'm basing her on Louise Brooks. So mm-hmm. visually, it's all, uh, Hugh Ferris was the architect uh, who designed a lot of the Federalist buildings in New York City. Mm-hmm. You actually can see those design influences in Batman, the animated series. That's what they would influence. So when you see a lot of Art Deco work, you're looking at a lot of the design influence of people like Hugh Ferris, Frank Lloyd Wright. So I want to pull that into it. And also... Francois Chouton, uh, who is the band designated artist who does all of the okay. architectural, uh, that, that's yes. what the comment is. So there's. Because he's fantasy urban landscape. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So this mm-hmm. is a tremendous opportunity to fuse all these different things that I love, band designate, uh, 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 art deco, but bring it into this black thing, mm. this black thing. That's what I want to do. And I want to do something that is powerful, that is emotive. But also as a digital artist, I use technology. I use game engines. I use 3D animation. I use digital illustration tools. I use a little bit of sprinkling of AI. All of it together can represent something that is both timely and timeless. So that's the what setting, the, the setting is obviously Manhattan, but yes. there seems to be also, as you put it, almost a fantasy element as well. I mean, what is the Metropolitan Tower? The, the, well, the, I thought it was the Met, the Met building. Hmm. That's what I thought. But see, that's what I'm saying. It's like, for example, I've spoke with people who read the book. Some people say, well, the comet hits. But some people say, well, the comet just passes by. So the beauty of the way Du Bois wrote was there was a little amb- uh, ambiguity in it. So I could do, I can tell the story, you know, with faith. But also take visual opportunities. For example, I see in my head, well, if a comet passes by, does it leave particles? So one of the motifs that is inherent in the book that I'm using is that it's black and white, but there are elements of green in it, like a Mm. comet, right? Mm. Uh, Because that harkens to kryptonite, Superman. The other thing, one of the people that is, is significant, and I've never really announced this before. One of my favorite graphic novels of all time is, uh, uh, Paul Auster. Uh, the, was it, uh, uh, Paul Karasik, uh, and David, Matt, uh, uh, Matt Kelly. Yes. That graphic novel. City of Glass. City of Glass. Great. Such a tremendous adaptations, effect. literary adaptations. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So I'm looking to do something that dense. Uh, uh, it will be a challenge to do it over a period of time. I will be 
at working in my studio, in my home studio, but I will also from time to time be uh, streaming from the gallery space while I'm working in real time. So it is a powerful, powerful opportunity, I hope, and I'll leave that to the historians to contribute uh, once again to the lexicon of his uh, of 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 Afrofuturism, but to hopefully also extend it. Well, uh, you you have a a, a history of works uh, that that do that around other topics. Um, what can you tell us very quickly as our as time is running down? What can you tell us about how did the publishing world? If you have a publisher, I'm not going to say who. But how was it accepted? Did it go out to multiple publishers? Can I, can I, uh, you know, probe a little bit? What can I say? What can I say? It did go out to multiple, multiple publishers. But what I think we've done is we found a publisher that has their, because look, I've, I've been independent. I've been a a, a mainstream uh, publishing guy. I've done both, which I thought at one point was bad, but it's actually very good because I can see the point of view from both vantage points. But I also would say with this particular publisher, they have the right sensitivity. Yeah. yeah. And they let me work. And that's everything. <laughs> that's everything. I want to make sure that I can do a project that uh all of the people who are here in this conversation, I have deep respect for each and every one of you, can hopefully, if I just give blood, and flesh, which you guys know I'll do. And sure, yeah, don't worry, I got to do the exercise and all that. Do better. I want to do something that you will feel proud of. Well, I, you know, I, 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 I know you will. I know you're working hard. Um, uh, wow. Let's see. Where are we at now? Uh, we're about at an hour. Uh, did I leave anything out? Any closing comments? Um, yes. About this project? There's the closing comments. Uh, how, many, how, how much have you gotten done so far? How much? Right how, now, how long we're are you? about between uh, 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 20 pages in, but that's constantly growing because I'm working on multiple pages at the same time. Uh, and also we're putting together all of the other material. Uh, Dr. Shamless has his contribution uh, and, and Dr. Anderson. They're both front and back matter of, effectively of this show. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, it, it will be growing every week. We wanted to do something that would build organically. Love it. Uh, you know what? I've had a chance to talk with you about so many of your other works, Tim. You're, uh, you really, you know, push the medium. We're in a great, um, moment for comics as a medium. Uh, it's expanded. Uh, it, it's, it's transformed the book world just as the book format has transformed comics. Uh, uh, I can't wait to see this book. It will add to this incredible era of innovation and vision, um, with comics as a foundation that, that's just, uh, very exciting for me and for others around it. Are there any other comments you want to make, um, before we close out? Hmm. You know, one of the things when I think of the life of Du Bois, you know, his last, he basically kind of tells you what he thought of the United States by, being buried over in Accra, Ghana. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking about what he would say knowing in the last 10 years, the environment in this country, mm. uh, they've dismantled voting rights. Yeah. They've recently dismissed affirmative action and they're steadily 
peeling away a lot of the things that the victories that they had achieved uh, on the eve of his passing, you know, in the mid sixties. And I'm just curious. One of the things I wonder what, if he could write a short story now, what would it be like? Cause you know, I think the bet, the, the second best short story after the comment, maybe Tim will do that, <laughs> but it's been done already. Is I think, what was it? What Derek Bell wrote about the space traders. Hmm. The short story in terms of what kind of story would short story would be could kind of illustrate this moment, uh, in the way that the, the comet did for its moment. And so that's kind of what's been on my mind now. What, how would Du Bois, would he, uh, what would he, uh, write now if he was still, uh, with us? Yeah, I agree. If there is one recurring thought related to work by Du Bois and work by these earlier generation, Writers, they face, you know, incredibly dire circumstances and they use, um, art and speculative work as a way to sort of think through that. So it's, I think it's incumbent upon us to sort of revisit this work and I really commend Tim for his adaptation and, and comics is a very democratic medium and to have a, a graphic novel Based on a comment now, I think it's really important. And it's super useful in this sort of time of crisis, isn't it? And it, and crisis is the word that I think most of us understand that we should use. Mm-hmm. So Tim, you get the last word. Uh, it is an absolute joy and pleasure to be alive at this moment. I never thought I would be able to say this. Uh, it is a joy, a pleasure, and a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. Uh, I see it as a responsibility. It's like what Dr. Anderson was saying. Du Bois is not here, so it's my job to, as best I can, provide visual for him. Well, look, on that note, uh, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ronaldo Anderson. Thank you. Dr. Julian Chambliss, and uh, last but not least, of course, thank you, Tim Fielder. My name's Calvin Reed, and uh, uh, it's been my pleasure and an honor to be a part of this uh, discussion tonight. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you, thank you. So, awesome. I'm going to run out of here now and go get a beer.